Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders with your host, Dwayne Veron. Welcome to Society Builders. And thanks for joining the conversation for social transformation. Now, I can't tell you how excited I am about today's episode. Today, we embark upon a new sequence of episodes that dive straight to the heart of our greatest ambitions in the discourse arena. I gave you a little bit of a prelude to this at the end of our last episode. As you might recall from that conversation, our world is more polarized than it's ever been, at least in my lifetime. Polarized and paralyzed, as the Universal House of Justice says. And we have a unique mission in helping address this because our supreme imperative is for unity. And as the tempest around us continues to escalate by this polarization disease, we face a great imperative to respond now more than ever. And this is part of the high calling that the Universal House of Justice summons us to in its message of December 30th, 2021, calling on us to bring previously antagonistic groups together in unity. In the discourse arena, I think this is our greatest challenge and our society's greatest need. And this focus is important for other reasons as well. It's not just that in its own right it's such a pressing issue, but many of the other discourse issues we tackle will require us to apply the skills associated with depolarization that we're about to learn here. So our exploration here lays a foundation for the future issues we'll be tackling together. And as we grow as communities, we'll increasingly need to apply these same skills within our communities, working to depolarize as previously antagonistic groups embrace the faith and need to learn to set aside their age-old prejudices in pursuit of a common goal. So here too, we need these skills to depolarize even within our communities. So polarization, I believe, is a clear priority for us, a priority in our society building ambitions for the next 25 years. But it's such a tall order, right? I mean, just thinking about it is overwhelming. How do you bring antagonistic groups together? What a supreme challenge, right? Well, as we discussed in our last episode, the key to tackling new discourse arenas is to first do our homework and familiarize ourselves with the existing science. The accumulated store of human knowledge generated through scientific inquiry, as the Universal House of Justice says. So across the next set of episodes, we're going to do exactly that. We're going to together explore this accumulated store of knowledge and get ourselves deeply acquainted with the depolarization literature. So our journey here starts with exploring what science can teach us about how to best bring antagonistic groups together. Now, over the past six months, I've been doing just that, 
doing the background research here, reading through the academic and popular literature, bringing myself up to speed on it all, so to speak. And throughout that process, I made a list and I checked it twice, identifying the leading experts in this science of depolarization. And I had a dream. What if I could interview all of these leading luminaries and bring them directly to you so you could hear their findings in their own voices. <laughs> and I'm pinching myself now because by some miracle, through the grace of God really, I've managed to interview most of these leading luminaries. <laughs> Can you believe it? So over the course of the next few months, you are going to hear from the leading authorities in the science of bringing antagonistic groups together. It's going to be an amazing, accelerated path to learning, hearing directly from these leading luminaries of our age. And we kickstart this all today with my interview with award-winning journalist, Amanda Ripley. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm thrilled to have as my special guest today, Amanda Ripley. Amanda is a New York Times bestselling author. Her reporting appears in leading publications, including The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, The Harvard Business Review, The Times of London, The Washington Post, I mean, the who's who of journalism. She spent a decade writing for Time Magazine, where her work led to not one, but two National Magazine Awards. She's also co-host of the How To podcast series on Slate, and she's author to three bestseller award-winning books. We're going to be talking to her today about her latest work, a book exploring the science of depolarization. Her book is called High Conflict why we get trapped, and how we get out. Now, High Conflict is an amazing award-winning book. And by the end of today's episode, I hope you'll rush out to buy your own copy. Because if you're interested in depolarization, then you have to read High Conflict. It's required reading. <laughs> it's where your journey, your training, should first start. So Amanda Ripley, Welcome to Society Builders. Thank you so much, Dwayne, and thank you for that very generous introduction. <laughs> Amanda, great job with the book. It's such an amazing book. It's deep, it's insightful, and it's so readable. It's absolutely riveting stuff. What was it that got you started on this journey? What was it that got you to decide to write the book in the first place? I think like a lot of Americans, I was just exhausted and dispirited by the kinds of conflicts we kept falling into where they just didn't seem to go anywhere interesting and it felt as a journalist anything i might do was either going to make these conflicts worse or have no effect at all which is the most likely outcome and it just started to feel like man there has got to be a better way so i went off in search of survivor stories, stories of people who had been trapped in really dysfunctional, toxic conflicts of all kinds and gotten out. 
And what I learned pretty fast was that was the wrong question, that actually the goal is not to get out of conflict because conflict is necessary, right? That's how we get stronger as individuals, as communities, as families. We need conflict, but there's a kind of conflict, which is the kind we are in more often than not these days, which is sometimes called intractable conflict or malignant conflict. I like to call it high conflict because it's slightly less terrifying, Uh, but, but the kind of conflict you're in really matters. And high conflict is the kind of conflict where you end up burning down the whole house and it operates very differently than healthy conflict or what you might call good conflict. So it's really important. It was very helpful to me to learn to recognize the difference. So then I really shifted from asking, how do you get out of conflict to asking, how do you get out of high conflict and into good conflict? And then found half a dozen people who were themselves trapped in high conflict, environmental activists, politician, gang leader, even a member of a guerrilla fighting force in Colombia, who then shifted to good conflict over time. So it's not like they stopped disagreeing, right? (laughs) Like they still had core values and principles and missions, but they were just much, much more effective in good conflict than in high conflict. Now, people, I think, don't realize how hard it was writing the book. First, there was just so much material for you to master. You you got yourself trained, actually, in mediation. You completed an 80-hour course uh, with Gary Friedman, who we interview in an upcoming episode. You travel all over the world, literally going into the jungles in Colombia, interviewing these FARC guerrilla rebels and Colombian government officials. It was a, a, a few years of your life, a good chunk of your life, going into writing this book. Tell us about the journey, about the process of actually writing the book. Yeah, I'm so glad that you noticed that it was hard because it was actually (laughs) quite overwhelming at times. I've written two other books, which were overwhelming in their own ways, but conflict is such a big subject. And if you could see around my office, you would just see stacks and stacks of books. There's just so much that's been done. Often those books are or movies or whatever are focused on one particular conflict, right? And what I was trying to do was see the patterns across different kinds of conflict. So I felt like I couldn't find that book that I wanted to read. And yet I had to do a huge amount of research and learning to get to a place where I could even (laughs) begin to identify patterns, right? So that was challenging and also really eye-opening because I had thought that I understood conflict pretty well. Like I was a little bit, a little bit overconfident, maybe we could say, because I spent 20 years covering conflict as a journalist, but it turned out there was a ton that I had not understood. Getting that kind of training, like you described from Gary, was just transformative. It changed fundamentally how I interview people, how I cover stories, and was really helpful to me personally and professionally on this kind of long slog journey in other ways. You share so many amazing stories in high conflict, stories of these amazing people who have done so many amazing, incredible things in this path of depolarization. 
and following the contours of your roadmap. We have episodes coming up with many of the people that feature in your book. I interview Gary Friedman, Rabbi Rowley, Peter Coleman. But what's so remarkable about your book is that you weave together these human stories with the evidence-based literature around what leads to polarization and what we can ultimately do about it. It's that human dimension that makes your writing so accessible. But the thread you're weaving is really centered on evidence and solutions that have proven to be effective. So I really want to start there. Let's explore the evidence-based solutions that research has demonstrated can really make a difference in bringing antagonistic groups closer together. Let's start with how it is that people almost suddenly and surprisingly for them find themselves trapped in polarized situation, almost against their will. How is it that happens? First, let me just say I'm so excited that you are talking to Gary and Peter and Rabbi Roly. I can't wait to hear what they have to say, because what, what you learn is that every time, even though I spent hours and hours interviewing these people, they'll always say something new that I'm like, why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> <laughs> and I just love listening to all three of them. And they have just a huge amount of wisdom between them. So that's awesome. And to answer the question of how do we get trapped in high conflict, there are about four different reliable tripwires that you can pretty predictably identify in every high conflict I've ever seen. So just to go through those real quick, because these are things to watch out for, right? If you want to stay out of high conflict. The first one is the presence of conflict entrepreneurs. So these are people or companies that exploit and delight in conflict for their own ends, right? The next is humiliation, which is probably the most underappreciated force driving every high conflict I've ever seen, whether it's gang violence, domestic violence, or a civil war. There's always humiliation driving it at some level or being manipulated at some level. Another tripwire is the presence of corruption, perceived or real. So when institutions or officials cannot be trusted to do what they're supposed to do, you're very vulnerable to high conflict because you will, of course, take matters into your own hands, right? When it comes to revenge or justice. And that's where you get that kind of spiral into violence, which then is very hard to get out of, right? So, the, so that we've got conflict entrepreneurs, humiliation and corruption. And the, the fourth one is the presence of false binaries. So these are like choices that appear to be much more limited than they are. So where we break the world into two choices, Republicans, Democrats would be one, black, white. There are millions of them, but that kind of us versus them thinking where it feels like if they win, we lose you start to wash away all the complexity within those groups. I know that I do. It's very easy to start generalizing about large groups of people, millions of people that you've never met. And that is very dangerous and very slippery because you end up eventually making a lot of mistakes about your opponents, such as they are, right? You Because you lump them all together, you end up overestimating the threat in some cases, underestimating other threats, and there's just a lot of evidence that right now, for example, Democrats dramatically misunderstand Republicans and vice versa in the United States. And that's driven by a lot of factors, including those other three <laughs> tripwires, right? But it is the kind of thing where the human tendency to want to split the world into good and evil is incredibly dangerous in a time where we really do depend on each other. 
Yeah, I guess the best way to to solve the problem is not to get yourself in the problem in the first place. <laughs> for sure. If you can watch out for those tripwires, reduce the effects of those forces, then your life is going to be a lot better and you'll be much more effective at whatever you're doing. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can't resist those. Now, as you explain in the book, probably the most important thing for people on both sides of a polarized conflict is to feel listened to and understood, really understood. Tell us more about this, this business of being heard and being understood. Yeah, this one, again, really just took me by surprise because I had spent years interviewing people for work and thought I was pretty good at it. But it turns out that let me just ask you, so Graham Bodie is a researcher who studied listening, and he's found that people feel truly heard. What percentage of the time would you guess people feel heard? This <laughs> I've read the book, so I have a little bit of a clue. <laughs> yeah, you're a little bit ahead of the game. But I want listeners in their heads to answer the question. Great point. Great point. Yeah. People feel heard. Do you feel heard? Um, what he found is it's about 5% of the time. So that's not very much right and what we know from other research is that when you don't feel heard you get louder and more extreme right because you want to be heard so there's obvious implications for anyone who's interviewing anyone that before people will listen they have to feel like you you are trying to understand them the technique that gary friedman taught me and that i now teach other journalists is called looping for understanding where when I'm interviewing someone and they tell me something that seems important to them, I will try to distill it into my own words and play it back to them and then check if I got it right with actual curiosity, right? And then see what they say. And half the time people will add on or they'll correct me and then I'll do it again. And then I'll keep doing it until they say exactly or something to that effect. And when they say that, you can just see their whole posture change because finally someone has heard them. Often they will understand themselves in a way they didn't before because that process of looping back around helps them articulate a feeling that is hard to explain. Anytime there's emotion involved, it's hard to articulate it. It is a way to build trust and to try to get underneath the usual repetitive talking points of a conflict and help people feel heard, even if I'm never going to agree with them. That's one thing I can give them. So looping is really about reciting back to a person what they've said, what your understanding is based on what they've said to get their kind of confirmation that, yep, that's, and if it's not trying again and trying again until a person feels that what we're articulating is actually what they were expressing. Excellent job, Dwayne. You got it. That was great looping. <laughs> That, that is it. Now, the fact that we think of this problem as polarization, even that construct inherently reflects a huge part of the problem, right? That, that people seem compelled to reducing life's problems to these binaries to an us versus them dilemma. How do we break that binary? 
There's a term in psychology called splitting, which is when the more anxious and afraid we feel, the more likely we are to split the world into two, into good and evil. So one way is to reduce the amount of fear and anxiety, right? I think one of the things that some of my colleagues in the news media are responsible for is really dialing up the threat level. So there are real threats, right? And then there are exaggerated and uh, imaginary threats that get dialed up by various conflict entrepreneurs uh, in social media or on TV or another in politics. And so that the effect of that is it makes it almost impossible to resist the urge to do splitting, right? To sort the world into two false choices. And that is where you get into violence because people feel so threatened, right? That they will take physical action. So that's one thing you can do is to reduce the threat level and make it more in line with reality. That is hard to do, right? When we've set up a bunch of institutions to reward conflict entrepreneurship, but that is probably the most long-term, most effective way to build resilience and immunity against high conflict. In chapter three, you talk about these conflict entrepreneurs. You referred to them a couple of times today as well, these fire starters. These are people who really fan the flames of this kind of polarization. They're people who feed our passions, who excite and fan those passions. I, I think it's interesting that you describe these people as persuasive, as charismatic. It's an interesting process where you're describing people who you want to talk to when you have a problem, who you feel compelled to talk to. But actually approaching and talking to these people, it sounds like it's the worst thing you can do. It's 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 the, the people who we're attracted to, but they're going to fan the flames. They're going to make the problem worse, not better. We all have these kind of fire starters in our circle. How do we marginalize the influence that such people can have in these situations? Yeah, it's, I think it's important for me to first acknowledge that we all can be conflict entrepreneurs. And this is actually Great one point. of the things that Great Gary reached out to me when I when the book first came out and he heard me on the radio and he was like, yeah, just be careful with that because you might create a whole new us versus them. And true, so I do true. try to remind myself that every day I just wake up and try not to be a conflict entrepreneur because especially on social media, but even in just around the office or in your neighborhood. It is easy to do that. It's a way to bond with people by, by complaining or blaming someone else. One way to recognize sort of serial conflict entrepreneurs is they describe everything as a humiliation, right? Whether it is or isn't. And they're always casting blame. They're always the victim or they're telling you that you're always the victim. So probably, like you said, all know people like this. We may have been like this. Usually if someone has made a career out of this, they have some kind of damage internally that they have not been willing or able to deal with. And they're like literally spreading the pain around. So if you see really seasoned, powerful conflict entrepreneurs, you'll rarely see them laugh in a genuine way or smile, right? They're just not that happy because they're spreading a lot of pain around and they haven't dealt with that internally. So anyway, that's the kind of uh, cosmic level, but more, to answer your question in a more practical way, um, with the people I followed, Curtis Toller, he was a conflict entrepreneur by his own admission for many years as a gang leader in Chicago. And uh, there were a lot of reasons for that. He had witnessed a lot of violence as a kid and he was spreading that pain around. As he told me, it felt good to feel powerful when you weren't powerful, to see people be afraid of you. 
he also, as he rose through the ranks of his organization, he had financial reasons to be a conflict entrepreneur. So there were profits coming to him through narcotic sales that had to do with generating an us versus them narrative. In, in this case, the gangster disciples were the other side, were the evil side in his view. When he finally reached a kind of rock bottom point and decided that he had enough of high conflict, a lot of things had to happen. But the first thing that happened is he literally put some physical distance between himself and other conflict entrepreneurs. So that when people would come to him and say, did you hear what happened? Did you hear what the gangster disciples did to someone? He, they literally couldn't find him. Uh, he moved across town. <laughs> so it slowed down the reactivity of that cycle that he was trying to get out of. In, in other people's case, it was about changing who you follow in the news or on social media, but trying to put some distance between yourself and people who incite and inflame conflict on purpose is probably the most practical first step. When I say that, some people say, what if you can't? What if your spouse is the conflict entrepreneur? <laughs> but when possible, that seems to be the first go-to step. Yeah, in, in both of the situations you're talking about here, there's a self-dimension to it, either a self-dimension in becoming aware of the presence and influence of the conflict entrepreneur in your orb, but also, as you say, making sure you're not the conflict entrepreneur. Oftentimes people come to you with a problem and the question is, how do you respond in that? Do you feed the flame of that passion? Do you feed the conflict or are you really working to, to pacify it? And there is something that is emotionally gratifying about being the hero. Gary talks a lot about this and in the interview I do with him about how sometimes even when we approach the mediation process, we're doing it because we want to feel like we're making a difference. And in itself, that can be part of the problem. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's so interesting. And with journalists too, right? There's a lot of hey, ego right. involved, right? And you're trying to be the one who exposes the corruption or the rot. And there's a lot of rhetoric about what you're doing. And then there's actually a lot of ego involvement in that. It actually reminds me of, have you heard of this phrase, the drama triangle? No, it sounds like a great phrase. What does I it know. mean? Don't you love it? So it basically means how, I think it, it comes from family therapy, like a lot of these ideas. And basically it's the idea that anyone can get pulled into a conflict as the sort of third point on a triangle right. or an HR person is a classic case, right? Or a boss, a manager. So an employee comes into your office and is truly upset about something that someone else, another employee has done. And you wanna be, you wanna be helpful, right? And that's good. So you might then take on the role of savior or hero and try to then mete out punishment or hold someone accountable, which might be appropriate, right? But what in a perfect world, assuming there's no extreme abuse or violence, in a perfect world, what you wanna do you get both of those people in the room talking to each other with some guardrails, right? So that right, they can right. help work it out, right? So that you're not becoming this, and I'm sure this is true with mediators, right? Is if you're just shuttling from one room to the next and they're never speaking to each other, they're gonna be back in two years probably, right? Yeah, you want them to own the problem, not for you to own the problem, but for them to own the problem. Yeah, you wanna step out of the triangle and make it like a just a line just a line. Right. Great people. point. You, you tell this great story in one of your interviews, retelling the story of Nelson Mandela meeting with this Afrikaans general. I love the story. It's a story of humility. But why don't you tell us that story and how you think it, it applies in this context? 
Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because tomorrow, as it turns out, is Nelson Mandela Day. And I was just rereading one of his books and I was thinking a lot about his own arc, right? I'm simplifying here, but he, like a lot of young activists in the early part of his journey, he felt like he tried all the nonviolent measures and they just weren't working. And he describes this scene where he was in front of a big crowd of supporters and he pointed to a group of police who were standing nearby and he basically said in so many words there they are they are the evil ones and they looked at him like oh my gosh (laughs) and at the time he didn't feel any qualms about it and it got of course got the crowd incredibly excited and that's the power of conflict entrepreneurship so you're pointing to the target of blame and he's not wrong right but also as he said, there's something, he has a great quote that's something to the effect of, there's no moral victory in using an ineffective weapon. And that's what that is, is an right. ineffective weapon. Maybe there'll be some violence against the police, maybe not. If there is, oh, it's going to follow, right? There's going to be more, much more violence against the protesters. And this cycle will just continue. So over time, he learned to really resist those impulses. And he, in particular, got really good at learning to never ever humiliate your opponent to the contrary to actually speak to them in their language i think the anecdote you're referencing is after he got out of prison while he was in prison he learned afrikaans he learned how to speak the language of his oppressor which was hugely and is hugely controversial right (laughs) among uh, yeah so fascinating yeah because it's like why should he have to there's a million things you could say about that but anyway he very purposefully wanted to speak their language. And he has another quote, which is basically, you can speak to a man's head if you speak to him in a language you understand, but if you speak to him in his language, you can speak to his heart. We're getting back to what is amazing being heard, being listened to, as you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And you can say that's manipulative. And I would say, yes, it is. And what's wrong with that? Another synonym for manipulative (laughs) is effective. The stakes are high. But in any case, he, I think it had to be also genuine on some level or else it wouldn't have worked. But when this high ranking official came to his home, as is after he's out of prison and they wanted to negotiate something. And this particular official was a known overt racist. It was not implicit sure, <laughs> <It> was explicit. <laughs> <sure>. and mandela had invited him into his home and when he got there he started speaking to him in his own language which takes the the official by surprise of course and then he asked him if he'd like some tea he says yes and then he begins to prepare the tea for him now mandela had staff at this point right there were people there who could do that sort of thing but he very intentionally did it himself and it was these small things he did in order to interrupt the dance that they were in of high conflict to take him by surprise so that there was a little bit of humanity. And when you see your opponent as a human and vice versa, it is harder to dehumanize them, right? I've told the story to other groups and they will say, but Mandela had a lot of power. Not everybody has that power. And that, that is true, right? This is, this analogy is only going to go so far, but I love the discipline and creativity that he brought to these interactions, right? And they ended up negotiating successfully that day for many reasons, I'm sure. But it's one example of how, if you just do the intuitive thing in these kinds of conflicts, 
it's just going to go on forever, make it worse. But if you can do the counterintuitive thing, then it gets interesting. It, it, it's just such a great example of the qualities that you need to bring to the table. And, and one of those qualities is that, that humility. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess some kind of genuine grace. I don't, I don't think you can totally fake that. Maybe you can yeah. for a little while, but I don't know where, I don't know how he did it. Honestly, I can see another book for you here. Nelson Mandela on high conflict. <laughs> yeah. He has a lot to teach us all. I'll tell you. You, you talk in terms of buying time and making space. Again, this is, is part of the remedy here that we're talking about. And in this context, you talk about things like rhythmic breathing, things you wouldn't normally associate with addressing high conflict. Tell us a little bit more about how something like rhythmic breathing fits into this art of depolarization. Like you were saying earlier, most of this starts internally, right? And Gary probably talks about this. One of the things that I often rub up against is, look, there's a lot of people and factors that I cannot control, right, <laughs> in any given conflict. But if I can fight to stay in good conflict in my own head, then I will be guaranteed three things. I will seize more opportunities when they arise, I will make fewer mistakes, and I will sleep better at night. That's like step one, right, is how do we get in the right headspace ourselves, regardless of what kind of nonsense is happening around us. And in stressful situations, always the breath is the only good way to do that, right? Whether you're a Navy SEAL or a Buddhist monk or a woman going into labor, it's always the same. There is only one way to access the stress response on purpose, and that's through the breath. It is just one way, like there are other ways, but that is one way to, to get into a better headspace so that you will make fewer mistakes. It, it highlights how much of the problem is this neurophysiological problem, where our brain just starts to behave differently when we get into that conflict scenario and how it's important to, to retrain our brain in that context, if you will, to get it reoriented and redirected towards, towards a better task, if you will, a higher task. Yeah, yeah. And, and in other cases, it might be you need to take a break, right? It yeah. might be you need to have a sandwich. <laughs> Those all sound really small, but we know that the brain is radically changed depending on these variables, right? And so we just cannot see what's happening clearly unless we're coming from a place of some calm, which is easier said than done, right? <laughs> How you do also you do talk... this when you're, do you ever find yourself caught in a moment where your heart's yeah, pounding? It's a great, it's a great point. I think that as you've been saying throughout this podcast, it's the awareness that is the starting point of it. If you can become aware of what you must be going through. A friend of mine, Chris Chabri writes this book about the uh, invisible gorilla, and he talks a lot about police who arrive at the scene and become a different person. They don't mean to be but it's just a different part of their brain kicks in. <laughs> and it's this need to become conscious and aware of that. And that happens at minor levels all the time in how we interact with other people. That calling to a higher level, that calling to our higher self. Peter talks a lot about just going for a walk, just yeah. breaking that cycle that you get in 
recognizing that your brain is going to kick in here and you're going to get these instincts that are probably going to be wrong, as you were saying earlier today. You also talk about complicating the narrative, creating and amplifying contradictions for people. How does that factor into the solution? Yeah, for me as a reporter, this is probably the most useful bit of advice I've gotten, which is basically through Peter Coleman's work at Columbia at the Difficult Conversations Lab. What they found is that, and I'm radically simplifying here, but basically when people are primed for complexity, when they are reminded that actually hard problems are complicated and there are usually not just two answers, right or wrong, they tend to open up and become more curious. When you're trying to communicate, whether you're a reporter or just a human on this planet, when you're trying to communicate in times of conflict, it is really helpful to first recognize the narrative that your audience has in their head and that you have in your head and where the facts do not support that narrative, be very aware and vigilant for counterexamples, right? And then try to amplify and shine a light on those examples. So let me think of an example just off the top of my head. If I think about right now, I was just reading about this conflict in the Senate over the military paying for female service members to travel to get an abortion, right? And if I actually look at the different groups here, right? It's not two. It feels like there's two. The Democrats and the Republicans are fighting again over abortion. But if I look at it, I was an alien visiting from another planet, which I try to do all the time. I see there's one senator that's essentially filibustering on this, who feels very strongly that this is worth holding up a huge number of confirmations for and really creating a logjam in the military command. Then you have some of his Republican colleagues who support him. Then you have a bunch of Republican colleagues who do not. Then you have some Republican colleagues who aren't really sure (laughs) and haven't said anything or are afraid to say anything, right? That's always a significant number. Then you have on the Democratic side, a bunch of people who are very upset by this. Some are upset truly because they're worried about military readiness. Some are much more upset because it feels like a violation of sacred norms for women's rights, right? These are all different groups, right? And it's hard to hold that all in your head. I probably lost to 10 listeners just trying to explain that, right? Because it's like a lot. <laughs> but it's a, you see what I'm saying? is As a journalist, can I tell that story? Can I interview the people who are unsure? Can I literally look to quote people who have changed their mind about something? Those are stories that are important to tell to break the binary in times of high conflict. And it goes against our natural instinct because our natural instinct is to simplify. That's what we're trying to do. And everything in our life is simplified. And this really goes against that grain, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a bummer. It's, oh gosh, really? <laughs> this again? I can't just hate these people or, hate, or think my side is 100% moral all the time. Uh, Great but point. It is, Great it, point. It is just another way to to try to get things right and make good decisions in a time where there's a lot of uncertainty. 
In your book, you talk about the saturation point that people reach, this point where the losses are greater than the gains and people really are open to, to change. And in that context, you talk about how people often have to find a new purpose, a higher purpose. You tell the story, a very interesting story about the Palestinian group, Black September, the, the terrorist group that was responsible for the 72 Munich uh, Olympics uh, crisis, about how the path to resolving and pacifying them involved Arafat, finding them potential brides, becoming a little bit of a matchmaker to help them get a new start in life. You talk about the, the Peace League in, in Chicago to help combat gang violence, creating something different through basketball, greater than the conflict for them, or, or at least different to the conflict. You talk about this process of the rehumanization, the recategorization that happens among these guerrilla rebels in Colombia, getting them to swap their identities and start these new lives. Talk to us about how important it is to find a higher purpose in this business of depolarization. Yeah, so we all have all different identities that we carry around, right? Not just one, but typically the conflict becomes all-consuming, right? And it becomes our main identity. But those other identities are still in there. And probably the most effective way to pull people out of high conflict is to light up their latent identities, especially their identity as a parent or a son or daughter. So that family identity is very powerful. It is the reason that Curtis Toller left the high conflict. He was in Chicago gangs. It is the reason that the FARC guerrilla that I wrote about, Sandra, left the violent conflict that she was uh, a member of voluntarily at great personal risk for her daughter. So it is again and again the most effective way to help people make that shift is to remind them or support their identity that's outside of the high conflict. On a personal level, my greatest moment in reading your book occurred towards the end of chapter two. Uh, I, I want you to see this scenario. I'm sitting at home. In my reading chair, I have this chair that I love reading in, and I'm sitting there, I have a, a cup of tea. I'm happily reading along, really enjoying your book, enjoying this tea. And then suddenly I see these references that you start making later in chapter two to the Baha'i community. Now, of course, I'm a Baha'i, and so I read this. I almost spilt my tea all over myself. I was just stunned. I was so excited. And I'm sure that every Baha'i who reads your book, if they don't know that's coming, they would have a similar kind of reaction that I You didn't I expect it, right? Yeah. I didn't expect yeah. it. It caught me by surprise. For the benefit yeah. of those who may not know what I'm referring to here, maybe you can help complete the picture and, and share the references that you make in the book to the Baha'i community. Share that with our audience. Look, I'm no expert, right? So I'll let you correct me where I get <laughs> things wrong. But I basically was casting about asking everyone I interviewed, everyone I knew, can you think of an organization or an institution or a country or a state, whatever, that has managed to create on purpose a culture of good conflict, where there are rituals and traditions and norms that seem designed to keep us out of high conflict by creating healthy conflict, right? And my friend Jen Brandel, who's the journalist who has covered, has done stories about the Baha'is in Chicago and elsewhere, 
she said, have you ever heard of the Baha'i tradition? And I said, no. <laughs> and so I did a bunch of reading and reached out to James Samimi Farr, who was at the time the head of uh, communications in the Washington office of the Baha'is, and realized there's this whole religious faith I knew nothing about, totally fascinating, in which the overarching principle is that we are all connected. So we can't give up on each other, right? If all the spiritual traditions and all of humanity is connected and is one, and we have to find ways to subvert the ego, right? And the us versus them thinking. And in day-to-day -day business of Baha'i groups, it seemed like there were some nice traditions around that, right? That I now try to steal and emulate in my own work. For example, when Baha'is have, have to make decisions because it's very sort of democratized, right? They will have a meeting and if someone has an idea, it becomes everyone's idea. So you stop saying, oh, Dwayne's idea to do this uh, makes a lot of sense to me, right? And, and because then you start having ownership over these ideas and your ego gets involved, but it becomes everyone's idea. And then likewise with elections, you're not allowed to campaign, right? But if you get asked to serve, you got to serve. And the ego is really subverted in that process. The, it's literally the opposite of elections today in the United States in every way. And yet it's happening all around the world. So it's very encouraging. But what do you, did I get it right? What do you want to add? Or no, it's great. You talk about it so beautifully in the book. My favorite reference that you make, and I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but the minute you framed it that way, I thought, huh, yeah, that's so true. Where you say, if social scientists created a religion, it would look like the Baha'i faith. <laughs> yeah, Love it's that like designed for human. Yeah, like given everything we now know about what humans need to live in a globalized, interdependent world and not destroy each other and the planet. Now, Amanda, this art of depolarization is going to be a massive priority for Baha'i communities all over the world for the next 25 years. This is a relatively new development within the community. About 18 months ago, this really became this focus on society building really became a priority for us. And of course, we're not just talking about Baha'is in big Western cities. I want you to imagine Baha'i communities in small towns and villages in the highlands in Papua New Guinea in the African Congo, in the jungles of Colombia. <laughs> and there's this yeah. ironclad commitment on the community that for the next 25 years, this is gonna be our focus. And we're in the early stages of this. The community is now just starting the process of developing and cultivating and building these new skills. But it's something you're gonna see a lot of effort certainly marshaled around. So knowing that, what advice would you have for the Baha'i community? I have heard this and I'm very excited about it. It would be really the height of arrogance for me to give advice to, to a community that has dealt with a lot of persecution over the years and is quite familiar with the challenges of high conflict. And so I don't know, except that the more you can tell these stories of what you are already doing, the more you can show that the way we set up institutions determines how we treat each other, right? That kind of thing is hugely hopeful. And I think maybe reassuring, at least to me, that there are Baha'is all over the world operating, not perfectly, right? There's plenty of oh, Absolutely, and absolutely, of course. But cultivating the norms and traditions and vocabulary that help create healthy conflict, as opposed to just avoiding conflict, which is what a lot of 
religious faiths try to do or blowing up in dysfunctional conflict, which is what we're seeing a lot of in a lot of churches and synagogues and other places now. I'm so glad that you made this reference to hope because fundamentally your work at the end of the day is a work of hope. It's a work of the story of human triumph. You talk about these situations where people land in conflict, but more important, you talk about how they got out of the conflict and even in circumstances that seem just incredibly daunting. And this really speaks to this whole focus that you have now on what you're framing as solutions journalism. Talk to us about that aspiration for you. Yeah, there's a way to do journalism that is really engaging and rigorous and serious that also investigates communities attempts to solve problems as opposed to just describing the problem <laughs> right this is something that i started doing without knowing there was a name for it just for my own sanity years ago when i would write about instead of writing about all the places where schools are failing let's write about a place where schools have gotten much much better that's interesting. And then I found out there's this nonprofit called the Solutions Journalism Network that uh, is systematically training thousands of journalists to go do this in a serious way. And in many ways, it goes against the kind of ego needs of a lot of journalists, especially ones who came up in an era where Watergate was the defining journalistic narrative is we're going to go out and expose corruption and then make the world better. So one way to hold the powerful to account is to cover rigorously attempts to solve problems. And for example, the New York Times did a story about the decline in homelessness in, I think it was Houston. And when you read that story, when you're not living in Houston, you naturally wonder why that's not happening in your city. Right. What, right. The, what the hell? And so maybe you ask your city councilman or maybe you reach out to your mayor or maybe if you still have a newspaper or a local TV news channel, you reach out to them and say, why aren't we doing this here? But there is a way to hold the powerful to account that is more generative than it is destructive. And I think solutions journalism is one example of that. One final question for you, Amanda, you know, as you say in the book, 85% of people are going to be experiencing conflict, uh, maybe even strong conflict in their work environments. You know, when you're reading the book, you're getting the high level rebels in, in Colombia. I mean, it's easy to look at those really very dramatic examples, but of course, everybody experiences these kind of problems in their day-to-day -day lives. Potentially a lot of them will experience it in their work environment. What advice do you have about how you you know, apply these skills really in, in the work arena. Yeah, it's really hard because there's so much you feel like you can't say or won't say or shouldn't say to professional colleagues. And so then a lot goes unsaid and then it just ferments underground, doesn't it? It doesn't go away, but resentments build. And this is especially true when we're working remotely, as a lot of people have been. It's just very hard to rebuild trust and relationship, which is what you need in order to have good conflict, healthy conflict, right? So one of the tricks and tips that I uh, try to use myself and share with others is something called the magic ratio, 
Peter Coleman has found this, but also John and Julie Gottman, who, who study marital conflict, have found this, that we all need to have significantly more positive encounters with other humans for every negative. And that ratio is about five to one. So we need to have fleeting, genuine, positive encounters for every five of those, for every one conflict encounter. And that's one way to think about, am I running my organization or my family for that matter, or my neighborhood in such a way that I am getting at a five to one ratio or anything close to it, right? With my neighbors would be a good example. There's a lot of neighbor conflict. And so one of the ways to preempt destructive conflict is to invest in that kind of, and that doesn't mean that you have to have like awkward, contrived, happy hours and birthday parties every three days. It's much more subtle, right? It's looking for the good in each other. Yeah. And like remembering each other and noticing each other and having moments of shared connection, doing things together, like shared projects is very powerful as, as Peter's work has found, um, it should be genuine and authentic, but it needs to be much, much higher than I think most workplaces have right now. What's next for you? These days I'm spending a good chunk of my time training other journalists and other organizations to try to cultivate good conflict on purpose. I started a company with a broadcast journalist colleague of mine named Helene Biondudi Hofer, and we do two things. We play experiment with new ways to cover conflict ourselves, and then we also train people to cultivate good conflict on purpose. So we're just, we're having a lot of fun with that. And I've really enjoyed the chance to not just write about other people's successes and, and failures, but also to to try to help people practice it. Oh, fantastic. Keep up the great work. So Amanda, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your adventures with us on Society Builders. Keep up the great work. And don't forget to get a copy of Amanda's book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Honestly, I think everyone with any aspirations towards helping bring antagonistic groups together must first read Amanda's book. It's truly mandatory reading. It's a great starting point. So thanks again for joining Thank us today, you. Amanda. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And, and I can't wait to hear the other episodes. So thank you for doing a deep dive on this. And thank you, the audience, for joining us today on Society Builders. Don't miss our next exciting episode where I interview Dr. Peter Coleman. We've talked about Peter in today's podcast. He's truly one of the leading authorities on conflict resolution, and we continue to explore the art of depolarization. Peter's going to share findings from a lot of the research that he's been doing, highlighting what works and what doesn't work. So don't miss that exciting episode. That's next time on Society Builders. Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. For social transformation, society builders. Ooh.
So engage with your local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting. It's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation. Social transformation, society builders. Join a conversation, social transformation, society builders. The Baha'i faith has a lot to say, helping people discover a better way with this cause and social action framed by unity. Now the time has come to lift the game And apply the teachings of the greatest name And rise to meet the glory of our destiny Join a conversation for social transformation Society builders Join a conversation for social transformation Society builders